You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Hey friends, you're listening to Discovering Truth. I'm Dan Duvall. Here to give you a few announcements, beginning with the 2024 Bride Tribe Advance. Now, friends, we started the Bride Tribe Advance in 2018, and there were just a little over 40 people. It has grown to over 500, and this year we are expecting six to 700 or more. And the reason why is because the glory of the Lord is in the house. And every year people come and experience encounter extraordinary worship and community with like-minded friends, family from around the world. It is epic. And I don't say that because it's our event. I just say that because I've been to all of them and (laughs) I know. And I want you to know that you're invited. So go to booking.bridemovement.com and register today. You can pay all at once or you can set up a payment plan to pay through the year and payments that don't charge you interest and help ease the uh, 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 purchase plan. Also, uh, you can register your kids. Um, It is going to be called Justice and Judgment. That is the theme, and we anticipate the Lord is going to do something extraordinary. So be there. Next, dandevall.com is the home of Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Keep in mind that at this website, you can check out past podcasts. You can also become a podcast patron where you give us a few bucks and you get a few benefits. In addition, there is merch that you can get to rep and be really cool. So check it out. Overcomer Accelerated is the program that we have been piloting for the past year and some. It is a place where those that are taking journeys of inner healing and deliverance, especially from heavy trauma backgrounds, can accelerate their healing journey with live demonstration, book study, and over 100 hours of courses available at all times as long as you are enrolled. And so it is very powerful. It is uh, also an opportunity to get coaching at a discounted rate if you select that particular package. So overcomeraccelerated.com, check it out. And finally, ManifestSpace.us. This is where we have our own little social media uh, club. <laughs> and and, and, and bride trappers from all over the world have, have registered. It's free. Um, there are some courses on there that you can pay for and uh, enhance your experience. But, but we just want you to be part of the community. And so uh, ManifestSpace.us, ManifestSpace.us. Friends, we're going to get right to the podcast. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Those were your announcements. Well, friends, we are back on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall for part two of Svali. And I am very excited about this. Uh, In our first program together, we covered some really deep and very powerful subjects pertaining to her experience. Svali is a survivor of mind control. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of her experience comes by way of her association with the Jesuit order. 
a subject that we're going to be getting into more deeply in this uh, uh, program. Svali has been known uh, for years as, as she started publishing aspects and elements of her story. Also, her deep and intimate knowledge with how programming is done to uh, various sites and one of the places that you can get a lot of information from her is Deprogram Wiki. She has also published a number of books, and she has a new book out, which I am absolutely highlighting in this podcast. And it is called uh, Never Give Up, the Autobiography of a Survivor of Ritual Abuse and Mind Control. And that is available in both ebook and print version on Amazon. Svali, welcome back to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Dan, thank you. Thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about today, Svali, and we're just going to pick up on a perspective that you believe we should have regarding Satan, which I agree with. And, and, and that is that we do not need to fear Satan. But for some, that's a very big statement. So I'm going to just turn it over to you and let you break this down from your perspective. Okay. Dan, thank you. I I feel like today it was important to, to address this first because sometimes even in my autobiography, which is during the f- first 14 years of my life, and in, in discussing my knowledge of how the occult works from an insider knowledge, it's the reason I'm able to do this. The reason I want to do this is because I want people to know we do not need to fear Satan. Because sometimes, you know, it's easy to hear my story and other people's stories and about world leaders involved in this and to go, oh my gosh, they run everything and there's just no chance that, you know, anything could ever be good. But I don't feel that way. What I feel is that I think God has an answer to the New World Order agenda, the occultic agenda. They're Yes. Are they planning to take over the world? Yes. Do they have those plans in place? Yes. But does God have a response? Yes. And it's not fear and it's not giving up, but it's knowing that he's already won the victory. And I want to share a little bit from Psalm 2. This has been my heart the last uh, few days. It says, why do nations assemble and people's plot vain things? The nations are assembling together. If you look at the WEF, the Vatican, um, the World Count, you know, all the Bilderberg group and all that, they're plotting vain things. Kings of the earth, which are world leaders, take their stand and regents intrigue together against the Lord and against his anointed. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing the battle lines being drawn between good and evil. And evil has had its machinations, its plans for centuries, as many people probably have shared on your show. And Yet, God also has his strategies and his plans. And so these regents and kings are saying, let's break the cords of their yoke, shake their, off their ropes from us. They're saying, get rid of this Christian belief or this belief in, in the true God and against his anointed, which is Jesus. And it says, he who is enthroned in heaven, the true God laughs. God laughs because he understands they have no power. They really have no authority except what we give away. My whole autobiography is, was, if you read it, is about being taught by the people I love to give away my authority to the demonic, to allow the demonic to control, to think the demonic was all that, and to believe falsely that it had more power than it does. But God laughs, and it says the Lord mocks at them. 
Then he speaks to them in anger, terrifying them in his range. But I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is God's answer. He has a king, the true Jesus, not the false one, not any fake ones, but the real one is installed. And so he says, let me tell the decree the Lord has said to me. And I believe there he's talking about Jesus. You are my son. I fathered you this day. Ask it of me and it will make the nations your domain. You are state the limits of the earth. You can smash them with an iron mace, shatter them like potters wear. So now, O kings, be prudent, accept discipline, you rulers of the earth. And what he's saying is, he's saying, I will make the nations your domain, your state. The cult, the occultic societies are trying to give away the domain of the earth to Satan and his, his spirits mm-hmm. as fast as they can. You know, they're like, take it. Yeah, because Satan and the demonic can only use people to accomplish their purposes. So they're trying to give it away. You know, like, let's give it. But what the Lord says, no, he says, He's saying to Jesus, I will make the nations your domain to Jesus' son. Your estate, the limits of the earth. And he's saying he can do whatever he wants. So that's why he says, serve the Lord in awe, tremble with fright, pay homage in good faith, lest he be angered and your way be doomed. In the mere flash of his anger, happy are all who take refuge in him. And that's a key too. When we take refuge in the Lord, we don't have to fear what Satan can do. In fact, we'll be happy. When we take refuge in him, when we spend our time, our thoughts, and our heart is stayed on the Lord, he brings joy. He brings happiness. So in spite of what a person has been through, in spite of their sin, I share terrible sin in my autobiography because I want people to know he forgives. There's nothing he can't forgive. He's merciful. But also, um, if anyone reads my autobiography, they're going to see I, I broke my mage vows to share some of these things. I broke so many vows I made to write what I did, and it was very hard. But it's because I want people to know we don't need to fear Satan. I had an acquaintance of mine who's a survivor from the same group that I was from. And she, the day I published my book, she, she asked me, well, aren't you afraid the demons are going to eat you now? <laughs> We're putting it out there. And I said, hmm. well, I used to be, but not anymore. I, we don't need to fear this stuff. Now, it's one thing for me to say that, and it's quite another thing for you to say that. And and I say that for this reason, under the vulnerability that was afforded you in your experience in the cult, you had encounters with Satan that someone like me w- does not have in the physical. And so for you to say that is a major statement, but I, I, I want to give you an opportunity to share more on just how (laughs) profound that statement is because I want you to share some of your direct encounters with Satan while you were still in the cult and and how those played out. Yeah. Well, the whole Jesuit order on the occult side, well, actually on both sides, is terrified of Satan. And the one thing that's made me angry as I've healed is the knowledge that we were not truly free to love each other the way we should have. Because Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer. And that's exactly what happened growing up. Um, Satan drove the people I loved growing up to lie, murder, um, deceive. And when I grew up, I became the same for many years. That's why I left the order. Um, I encountered Satan in two forms. Um, in the Vatican, um, he has, he, sometimes he appears in what's known as his beautiful form. And his hideous form, the beautiful form, we called him Theo, which means God in, in 
Latin. But Theo, um, well, anyway, that's the, the what we knew him as. And he appeared as a, a human being, but with like, he had a widow's peak and dark black hair, black eyes, and, and was very beautiful um, and very um, charming and very convincing. And so like sometimes um, there's a secret Vatican council and among the Jesuits and we would meet and Theo would appear there often and he would advise us what to do. So when you, I was talking about the plans of the occultic world, it was often based on direct advice from Theo, who we believed was Satan. Now, was that actually Satan? The order believed it was, but could have been like, I mean, spirits can masquerade, so I, I can't say for sure it was it was the physical manifestation, but it was sure convincing when it happened. In this hideous form, it was more of um, demanding sacrifice. Satan would depend, would appear on his hideous form below the Vatican on, on at what we called Satan's throne. It's it's a deep layer of the Vatican um, that was built centuries ago. And um, what what happened there is is what I remember seeing leaders leaders from around the world not all leaders not and by the way i'd say at the t- i would say based on my memories possibly half to two-thirds of world leaders have gone there or are committed to the occultic you know agenda but a third are not i want to emphasize that not every god gave us a will we do not have to do what satan says and there are world leaders who have said i will not do this and so it's not like, well, Satan runs everything. You know, growing up, I thought, well, Satan runs the world. He runs everything. That was one of the big lies. Wow. People just are going to cave into him and he's going to take over. Well, that was a lie. But that's what the order believes. So you see these world leaders and there were some church leaders too. And there were um, different people that came down there wanting a favor from him. And with the in the Vatican, what they'll do sometimes is place a small child who's undergoing occultic deep occultic training to sit on his throne. I, I did it, others did it, and we would speak for him because not everyone in the room could hear Satan's voice. So he needed to speak through a human being. Um, and so, but what I saw was that Satan wanted to be treated like God. He wanted to worship. Mm. He would have ground glass in front of his phone and make people crawl on their hands and knees over ground glass or over nails or hot rocks, whoever his, his you know, I guess, whatever he wanted that day, they would go and, and he just enjoyed watching people grovel. And then they'd kiss his feet. And then they would, um, you know, beg him a favor and they would have to bring him a sacrifice or a tithe or something to return the favor. But what he most wanted was worship because Satan wants to hold the place of God. And people that came to him were deceived because they thought that he would help them. I have never seen Satan actually help. I've seen him give a favor or do things, but it's always at a cost that's much too great, much, much too great. It takes part of the human soul away, I believe, to serve a, a demonic spirit. And he was a demon. The Bible calls him fallen angels. You can read about it. He is a he was a demonic spirit that wanted to be like God. And he fell because of his pride and took a third of the angels with him. And that pride still exists today. He's still trying to capture mankind because he knows it grieves God's heart. You know, there's always one or two people, or probably more than that, listening to my podcast or many others, where as soon as the subject of Catholicism comes up, anything that is negative towards Catholicism becomes like Catholic bashing or whatever. And I just 
want to say this. The I've met a lot of Catholic people over my lifetime. Most of them have absolutely zero idea of what happens in the Vatican. Yeah, that's true. And I, I'm not. I, I'm just not going to avoid talking about it because it makes some people uncomfortable. And and it just needs to be said. This is happening in the underground location of the Vatican. They actually built a room, Satan's throne, and wow. Well. You know, here's the thing. Thank you for sharing that. I agree so much with the, because this is, this is how I look at it. God told David that he was going to preserve the throne of David forever. In fact, that the Christ would ascend to the throne of David and sit on it. And in, in the book of Acts, as Peter is giving his first evangelistic sermon and 3000 people come to the faith, Acts chapter two. The the crux of the whole conversation Peter has, like the main point, the climax, is the reveal that Jesus Christ is the one who now sits on the throne of David and that the Jews crucified him, but he's the Lord of glory. And so the, the idea is that Jesus is sitting on that throne, but the throne is described this way. He, he will sit in the throne of David until all of his enemies are made his footstool. So the whole point of Jesus occupying that throne is the subjugation of his enemies. It, and, and, and that's a process that plays out in linear time. And it's a linear time that we are part of. And here's the reveal. It's like, look, um, the body of Christ are the believers. First Corinthians. I mean, it like all of chapter 12, like we're talking about like the body of Christ being uh, 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 us. So if Jesus is sitting on the throne of David, we're the body that sits on the throne subduing the enemies of God. And this is where we begin to understand the whole role of the body of Christ is to coach the nations as we become that like connect point of God's government to the earth. And the power of Jesus Christ is supreme to the power of Satan, even when it's working through world leaders. And that's what I've begun to step into. It's like, look. What Jesus has done is something that I just think we haven't fully connected with. And so I'm just very excited. I'm very excited every time I talk to somebody that is you know, on the same frequency and wavelength. Like, look, we don't need to be afraid of Satan. And, and we have a superior God and a superior kingdom backing us. Absolutely. I agree with that. I really do. And that's why even like um, now I know in the U.S. things are going on that that upset people. And I know even worldwide, I, I, I like to listen to world news uh, too, more than even what goes on the, in this country. But um, when we see the way things are going, I mean, the cultic has a, has a 20-year plan. And, I, and in 2000, I had written on my blog because I knew then that in 2020 that, that they would begin revealing themselves. It wouldn't be hiding. And we're seeing that nowadays. And I believe that well, the Jesuit order believes, I don't know that I believe it anymore, but the Jesuit order believes that by 2030, a world leader will be revealed. And that when he is, that um, so a lot of what we're seeing is to try to prepare the way for him starting to be revealed. Now, is he? I don't know. You know, I have question marks. Maybe, maybe not. Mm. Only the true God knows the answer to that. But what I do know is that's why we're seeing the, the battle intensify between good and evil. I do know that that the um there was a plan for the United States, for instance, to go through civil war. Will we? I I don't know. I pray against it, but you know, I do know that's the occultic agenda. 
But even if that happens, I believe that God is greater than the plans of the enemy. I believe that he, he there's going to be an outpouring of his love, his goodness of revival, that even in the midst of what could be some persecution that the world has never seen, we're going to see an outpouring of the true God, of his true Holy Spirit that's going to, we're not going to be a church cowering in fear. We're going to be a church that's victorious. Come on. That's the way it is. That's what I believe. <laughs> I, I'm preaching now, but <laughs> but that's the point. And that's the only reason I share my stories. I want people to know God is one, true God. So look, I, I I'm going to use a little bit of self control here because uh, this I want to get on my soapbox. I've been on a series that it just, you know we just came out of the series at our church called the Trans Dimensional Kingdom. And now we're on a new series called, uh, where I'm really focusing on the mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And, and I, you know, as you're talking, I'm just triggered and I would love to just preach the victory and power of Jesus. However, I, I really want to let you talk about some things that I think are so essential because it, the, the Bible says that the things which were done in darkness shall be shouted from the rooftops. And I see that as part of your role, Svali, and you've been doing this for decades now with your blog and everything that you've put forth. It, you, you have been part of that agenda of heaven to reveal the hidden works of darkness and iniquity, um, put them on display so that the children of God can know what we're up against, and what the authority of Jesus in us is supposed to be confronting. You know, and I think this is one of the biggest Biggest, I guess, fallacies, you know, we, we want to avoid talking about the things the enemy is doing because that's just going to glorify the kingdom of darkness. So we'll avoid it and just focus on Jesus only. And I say that keeps people in ignorance because if people do not know what God has righteous indignation about, they, they can't attach their own assignment here on the earth to what God is trying to confront or overcome. So to keep the children of God in blindness to what the enemy is doing and, and the way he is hurting people for the sake of, you know, this one-liner is absolute baloney in my opinion. I think that we need to be educated. We need to be informed. And there, from a place of no longer being blinded by ignorance, we can say, Lord, what is my role? What is my prayer assignment? What is my task to bring the influence of your government into this earth where there is gross darkness and things that are happening to children that should be prayed against and intervened upon. And so with that said, I want to give you a, a, a platform and I'm going to get out of the way to talk about the Jesuit order and how they are entangled with so many different, both Illuminati families and occult groups and secret societies around the world, because they, from what I understand from you, are basically in virtually everything. Well, how did that happen? And what does that mean? Well, that's a biggie. I'll do my best. Okay. That's like saying, uh, describe Einstein's theory in 10 words. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, um, well, first of all, You've heard the World Bank, right? Absolutely. Well, guess who who helped create and fund it? The Vatican. If you look at at who actually sits behind the World Bank, just just as one example. Mm -hmm. So, I always say follow the money too. You know, is is one good rule if if someone wants to investigate things. So 
my understanding based on my memories growing up, this is what the Jesuits believe. Now, I, I do want to be careful because what I'm going to talk about, probably only the very highest levels of leadership in the various societies would know. Um, and the, and the members of various groups will be programmed to believe otherwise. And just, and I, and I'm going to say it, it goes, both ways, you know. So I have to be careful because I know people may hear what I'm saying and say, well, that's just her programming to believe that. And that's okay. That's a valid point. But my understanding is that um, all, all the occultic societies try to infiltrate each other. That's a given. If you're a Templar Knight, you want to know what the Illuminati and, and the Rosy, Rosicrucians, we call them Rosies, and the other groups are doing what Magnificat is doing. They, well, Magnificat is one of the few groups that's never tried to infiltrate other people. <laughs> and that's because they have their own specialized little thing, you know. But a lot of the other groups, they will. They'll send agents to try to infiltrate. And they've done it for many, many, many years. But, my, but based on my memories of, say, things like Roman days and seeing some of the leadership of the various societies come to Rome and swear their fealty, and the Jesuits are, are presiding, I do believe that the Jesuit order is oversees the other societies. Now, do it, but it's kind of like you made a good point. If you're a Catholic in a local parish, you may have a good godly priest who knows nothing about what's going on in Rome. In the same way, if you're a member of of Illuminati cell in in Western Canada, you may have no idea that you know top leadership has been to the Vatican. So it's. But I've seen, like I said, I've seen world leaders and occultic leaders go to Satan's throne at the Vatican. When I was getting my memories um, years ago, and I was journaling, I, I'd known about the 12 Illuminati fathers, you know, and being a ceremony, you know, where they were, where it was a ritual type ceremony where they were in a ring. But as I was remembering later, I saw 12, I saw them in a room in a circle and there were 12 Jesuit fathers standing behind each of the leaders. I'm like, why am I seeing a Jesuit father? This is my soul thought was Illuminati. Why is there a Jesuit father standing behind each of the Illuminati leaders? And that's why I started to remember, because they're advising them. And then that's when I remembered that the Jesuits were the ones that trained the children of royalty. You can go back, and it's a historical fact. And the reason they did is because they were given tutelage of the, the daughters and sons of the kings and queens. And so what they did is they did their own programming of these children, even back then. They, it was different from the techniques they use today, but some of it was similar because they wouldn't ensure that those children were loyal to them. So you might have the king of France and the king of Spain and the king of England who you know, were, were giving some fealty to the Illuminati centuries ago, but their children were being programmed to give fealty to the Jesuits, to their Jesuit tutor. Wow. And so that's how some of the influence of the Jesuits really started. And um, so they they actually have had control of some of the top leadership, like I said, So, of the, or, or the kings of the earth. They wanted to rule the kings of the earth, and that was their goal. And they considered the Illuminati the kings of the earth. The 12, they, if they, call, they call the 12 fathers of the Illuminati, the heads, the kings of the earth. That's one of their titles. And they wanted to rule them. So they took their children and tutored them. So, I hope that's explaining very briefly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now, but the Illuminati, well, well, no, the Illuminati have tried to infiltrate the Jesuits, you know, they're well aware of it, you know, and the Templars, and, you know, all, you know, and, and of course, and then the Templars have tried to infiltrate, and, and so the Jesuits have agents in a lot of, of 
different organizations, like in the Knights Templar, the you know, the Knights of Jerusalem, the Knights of Malta, you know, they have their agents there too as well. And of course, the, these other uh, groups are have also tried to send their agents to infiltrate um, the, you know, the Jesuits. So, And what role, I guess, does the crusade efforts of the Jesuit order as, you know, evangelists, so to speak, the, uh, the military and evangelistic arm of the Roman Catholic Church play into their infiltration of various occult groups and acquisition of occult knowledge through history? Well, a lot of the occultic uh, Jesuit fathers, who and, and many are very, very different from those on the public side. And by the way, there are female Jesuit fathers, just so you know. And people have said, what? Not on the public side, but on the occultic side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and about 1912, they started allowing women to become Jesuit fathers on the occultic side. Mm. I can tell you the exact year. And... um. And it was a hard battle for women, by the way, to rise in the order in the early years because there was a lot of the, you know, you're not a man. But um, starting, I'd say, by the the 60s, that was changing. And so by by um, by the late 60s, early 70s, you know, women could become generals. The Jesuit order has 12 generals, and they they allowed women in at that point, just so you know, too. Now these are not going to be the people you see if you if you go online. Everyone's going to rush to the website and see if there's any women, you know, in the Jesuit order. And you're not going to see it publicly. This is occultic and hidden. Okay, so I just wanted to mention that. So historically, though, the Jesuits would go into countries around the world, and it, it looked like they were Catholic missionaries. But the occultic Jesuits—that's the last thing that they were doing. That they wanted. What they were doing is they were going. They were some of the first people into a country learning the language, Japan is an example, but what they wanted to do was to establish a foothold for learning about the occultic traditions in that society. And then they would grab those traditions and um, use them and add them to their own occultic practices because what they wanted was spiritual power, occultic power. And so if they found an interesting practice, for instance, um, they also uh, worked very hard, and it took a long time to start infiltrating the the um, criminal clans in in Japan that that run part, uh, that are part of behind the scenes in Japan, kind of like an occultic mafia. I think would one be one way to describe it, and that took forever because they were so closed. Um, are we talking about like the yakuza? Uh, somewhat like that, and others. There's others that, that in Japan that are less well known, but are very wealthy. And very criminal. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so they were missionaries supposedly for Catholicism, but that that's not what they were. A lot of them were doing. They were learning the language and then learning the spiritual. When, when they went in, like even with the conquistadores in South America, they went to learn what the Mayans were doing, mm-hmm. so that they could start doing that kind of stuff or learn from what they thought brought the most power. And they, so they incorporated some of those practices too. They uh, part of the shape shifting they learned too was from the Navajo um, Indians in the United, you know, in the Americas when they encountered them. And I can share with you a resource just in case anyone reads my biography and says, "Well, that kind of stuff is like beyond belief." What you're describing, um, there's a book that is called, um, and. I, I did not know about this book, but another friend of mine who had read my book told me about it. After she had read my book, she said, 
Well, there's a book called Navajo Traditional Teachings and Histories by Robert S. McPherson, and he describes shape-shifting and sacrificing people you love to gain occultic power. And that's in the light. This was a guy who went and interviewed Navajo witch doctors. Wow. So this is not dissociated. This is his um, academic treatise on what they believe. In your book, because I had the opportunity to read a good portion of it, you talk at one point about shape-shifting, being trained to shape-shift. Yeah. And uh, that included ravens and wolves. Wolves. Mm Mm-hmm. And you said something so interesting that the wolf shape-shifting protocol that was taught to you was allegedly gained from a group in Europe because one of the Jesuit fathers or whatever saved the life of a leader of that clan or group of people. And they gave the incantations and the ancient protocol for doing that, which they then took back to their own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his name was Father Daniel. And this is now I, I may go cool in the book. This is what I was taught. So it's like our legend of how it got, how we learned that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, this is oral tradition because mages use a lot of oral tradition. So we don't have like research records or, and back then they didn't have photographs. So you can't verify totally. But, but we believed it is that apparently he was, um, he was in Eastern Europe and he, I think he was going through the woods and he came about someone who had been wounded. I think that, that, um, this person had been, um, I don't know. It, I believe he was shot with an arrow. And, and so, so Father Daniel took him to, to his camp and nursed him during the night and used the knowledge that he had of, because, you know, the Jesuits even back then had lots of like knowledge of healing from various cultures. So he was using some of the, knowledge he had about herbs and and different methods of healing and and things like that and and the guy lived and he was grateful and so then the guy and so then he didn't know he was a shapeshifter though i don't think but he did see i think a, a skin of a wolf laying next to him and and so later he but i think this father joseph father sense he had occultic power of some kind so he said you know um the guy said, what can I do to thank you for for saving my life? And Father Daniel said, I'd like you to teach me your knowledge because I, I can feel that you have a lot of knowledge of some secrets. And at first, you know, he was very hesitant, but he finally said, okay, I will. He said, I'll take it. And he took him and Father Daniel spent, I think, a year with these people. And he learned, this was like 200 years ago or something. And he spent a year with them learning the types of sacrifices they did and the, the rituals and the incantations and all the things they did to, um, and what he discovers, these were people who were generational, meaning that in their bloodline, they had a natural ability to do this, to, sh- to shift shape and, and to become wolves. And it was like inherited, you know, throughout, you could, there's a term for it, generational iniquity. Mm. Okay. That's right. And so they were predisposed to be able to do that genetically as well, just through, you know, their many years of, of doing the sin. And so they taught um, Father Daniel how to do it. Now, Daniel could not do it as long as they could. And if you do it too long, you'll die um, because the pain is horrendous when you do something like this, because this is not what God intended for human beings to do. He did not intend for us to do these kinds of things, to look at these things 
or to participate in. So this is a deed of darkness that was passed down. And then Father Daniel brought it back to the Jesuits. But God forbids doing this kind of thing. And so while these things happen, I mean, Scripture says this is forbidden. It's clear. You do not do these things. And I believe that's the reason there was so much pain. I think it was both physical and spiritual pain because it was doing something God says not to do. So, I mean, you said it exactly. It Having, because this is, I mean, that that is going to sound very shocking to some people. So, wait a minute. Are you saying that the Twilight series where there are like the werewolves and the vampires, like this is real? Like this stuff really sits in certain people groups, like these abilities, dormant or not? The answer is yes. And never, the reason I've why. I've never seen Twilight. <laughs> so, oh, well, and, they should have. I, I just know. <laughs> yeah. But like that, that's the whole theme of this. Like it's a book series and then they made some movies out of it. And, you know, you have a, a, like a guy and, and he's a vampire and then there are werewolves and you, got, you have this teenage love story in the middle of all this stuff. And um, but the whole idea is, you know, iniquity, iniquity is what I would consider. And I, 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 I'm thinking you're going to agree with this, but like the basically like the backbone science behind occult practices where they understand that if they can perfect the iniquity in a person, they can have maximal range to use that person in all manner of supernatural, extraordinary abilities from time travel to shape-shifting. And they, 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 the thing about iniquity is, you know, the Bible would describe it as perversion. Um, Avon is one of the words translated to iniquity uh, often throughout the Bible. It means to pervert. And it is the iniquity that God visits from the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation, not sin. It's actually iniquity. And the reason why is because it's a genetic, it's a genetic level of transition that, that and it sits, it sits in the DNA. And so whether it's the shape-shifting or other things like that, that, that sits in the DNA. And, and to my understanding, you know, as they're moving towards their man of sin, son of perdition, Antichrist, the the Illuminati families are trying to perfect the iniquity in the generation that produces that. Hence, so many rituals, so many murders, so many killings, so much convergence of occult sciences. It's a genetic thing. Well, the Jesuits already believe they have him. So wow. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they believe. So tell me about that level. The Jesuits believe they have him. What does that mean? It means that in the year 2000, they believe that there was a half-human, half-Satan's um, son born. And he's now um, 24 years old, well, 23 years old as of December. He was born on the 23rd of December. And um, they believe that he is the anointed one or the one who's to come. Now, I can't say for sure if he is, you know. Because Satan's a liar. And remember, the Jesuits are serving demons, so demons lie. So while the order believes that, and a lot of world leaders came to the christening, the satanic christenings of this child, is he? I don't know. But that's why I said in 2030, you know, he's supposed to be revealed because he'll be 30 then, just like Jesus was. Interesting. Do you believe you met him? Oh, yeah. Did he look like a normal human to your recollection? Yes, absolutely. He looks like a very beautiful human being, um, blonde hair, blue eyes, very charismatic. Um, one of the reasons that I have um, experienced some of the, the um, persecution I have, um, I did a series of um, interviews with someone else, is because this individual swore not to, to rest until I'm dead. And um, 
I told a friend of mine who's a strong Christian, and my friend laughed and said, well, then he's not going to get much rest, is he? (laughs) 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 What a good, you know, I like that attitude because I refuse to be afraid. Okay. So this isn't just someone that you met one time, like there is an ongoing, wow. It was until, um, well, it was until about eight years ago that I had encounters with him. And he would show up sometimes to threaten me. And I would say, uh-uh, in Jesus' name, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna die. But another friend of mine who left the Jesuit order told me because of the attempts to take my life, she said, You do know they have a nickname for you in in the in the order, don't you? And I said, No. She said, Yeah, it's cockroach. And I said, Cockroach, why? And they said, She said, Because they keep trying to kill you. <laughs> it doesn't work. Oh wow. Because God can protect incredible so i I guess i have another question then this this person just not from a by the way again mm, mm. jesuits serve demons yes demons lie Mm. satan lies so i have no idea if this really is a person but this is what they believe right Uh, no and i hear you i hear you because i I mean it's the same thing like you know they think that satan has all this power but then you know god sends michael and he causes Satan to have a bad day and this guy trips over a bridge and falls and dies. I mean, like, it looks like we'll need a few more years. Like there are other things that God can cause to happen. So, so this individual, um, would you say that he has a, pretty much a perfection of like telepathy, what? ability to trans translocate without effort, uh, shape shift, like all time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. His name is Lucas. That's a name I knew him by. I don't know what he'll be known as. But yeah, he could do all that. But the main thing is he was not like a normal child when he was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, he had no conscience. Like like most um, most children had to be taught and programmed to kill. Yeah. Not with him. Wow. It was, in fact, it was just teaching how. Um, when he was small and he was nursed, he didn't just drink milk from his mother's breast. He had to cut her breast so that there was blood with it. Things like that. And that's common with this type of children. They're, they have other hybrids, too, in the order that, that are in their teens now. And so, um, but I don't want to sensationalize this because this is just the demonic. Mm-hmm. When people mess with demons, bad things happen. When they turn to the true God for life, good things happen. So even though I've seen these things and experienced them, and I've, I've seen hybrids, um, I had... I was called in when, when I was, um, this will be in my second book. All right. I'll give an example. When I was in my twenties, um, I was called to a, one of our Jesuit facilities in Poland because we had a very early hybrid child there. And I was called to go. Um, I was called in because um, I was a head trainer then for the Jesuits. And they said, what do we do? Something's happened. So I, I fly out there, I get there and the father who was in charge of that facility where we were raising him was saying, I've got to show you something first. And I went outside and he showed me the, the chicken coop. And this two-year-old toddler had gotten out and had wrung the, the heads off of every single chicken in the coop. There was like two dozen. I had, and apparently I sat and played in the blood laughing. And he said, what do we do with this thing? And I remember being horrified because I'd never seen a child just randomly kill like that. But what had happened is the early hybrids were not in the womb as long. Like they could, they were like aborted because the mother was dying at like eight and nine months, eight and a half months. And so 
the shorter the time in the womb, the less human they looked and the less human they acted. So eventually they had to put the child down. You know, we collected all the data we could to, to improve our protocols on dealing with hybrids. In our order, we would have adult trainers bond with these children both male and female, because without socialization, without bonding, they would end up like that toddler. Apparently, the toddler did not have enough human socialization or bonding and nurturing. But the other thing was there were other factors too. So, um, but because they, they were so um, antisocial, you, you could not put small children with these these hybrids because the child, they would try to bully or hurt the child, but also the child, children will instinctively flinch from being around them. So part of their socialization was teaching our children to be around them and then teaching these creatures, I'm going to call them creatures, to be around human beings and to not attack them or hurt them, okay? So I so regret my work that I did with those creatures. I so regret what the order did. This was this was sin, absolute sin. I've asked God's forgiveness for being part of that when I was in the order. And this is one of the reasons I left the order was seeing what was happening. Seeing what because these creatures don't care about human beings. They want to destroy the human race. The real occultic agenda is not a new world order. The real occultic agenda at the deepest levels is to destroy the human race. And I could not agree with it. And that's why I left. Because I believe that God's kingdom is prevailing. He will, he has promised he will reign just like in Psalm 2 that I read. And we don't need to fear this agenda. These creatures, well, the plan was for some of these creatures to sit on that secret bag in council in a few years. You know what? I don't care what Satan tries to do. He's lost. He's a loser. And these hybrids are losers, and they will not win. I serve a God who's greater. I serve a God who's won the victory, and I will not be afraid. And people are going to hear some things in about in the next few decade or so, possibly, that could be pre-wiggy. And you know what? God wins. We don't have to fear. Um, all right. So I was going to go one way, and now I have to ask another question. Going another way, and then because because I and you know and and the people that I've trained, we're, we're serving uh, survivors all over the the world. Um, one of the things that we're running into is a lot of artificial intelligence in this what I'll call the system. Mm-hmm. Now. Can you talk a little bit about your knowledge of the interface between the artificial intelligence and these hybrids, if any? I personally um, believe that some of that is overspoken. What I saw was AI. We, we had AI in the cult decades ago. And AI has limits because I don't believe that like AI is going to become this super intelligence that, that runs the world. I personally don't believe that. I didn't see any indications of that when I, I was in the order and, and did extensive work with AI. What we saw AI as was a tool. We could sit there and like on Project Alexis, we had AI and we could ask her to model and create a hologram for us of, of different things we were working on. And, and AI could do that. And I mean, so fast, much faster. It would have taken teams of thousands of human beings, you know, months to have done that. So AI, I saw as a tool when I was in the order, I don't think that the technology itself is going to do, I I know Yuval Harari and people are talking about it becoming God and it's like, oh, get real. That's nonsense. Now, do I believe that it could have wicked applications? Of course. And 
are there things technologies develop that have and the worst use of AI has been in programming people because we develop machines that incorporate AI as well as on virtual reality into the programming scenarios. And you put some in those machines, it's horrible. They don't turn into a machine, but what it is is it made the it made the programming uh, much more sophisticated and more difficult to break. And that, and I've asked God's forgiveness for help, helping to develop some of those technologies. And I believe He's forgiven me. But um, it's just it's people come up with really bad ideas when they they don't listen to the God that created the universe, the one who loves us. So. People can come up with all kinds of terrible ideas. And I think using AI for programming or to harm others is a terrible use of what could be a a tool for good if used wisely. So in your book, you spent a lot of time talking about healing technologies. Now, to set a little bit of context for this, um, and I'm not going to, you know, tell your story, obviously, but I mean, I did get a copy. And and again, folks, if you're listening, uh, her book is called Never Give Up, the Autobiography of a Survivor of Ritual Abuse and Mind Control. You discuss how you grew up with the fathers, the Jesuit mm-hmm. fathers. And, and so that was your reality from like day one. You didn't have another family and this and that. And then, you know, at five, there was a transition or no, it was just right from the outset. Yeah. And you talk about uh, 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 in their facilities, they had these elaborate sets. You talk about laboratories and then healing rooms. Yeah. And the healing rooms were to mitigate the consequences of the sadistic programming. And some of that, a lot of that in your experience was the Mengele side of things because he was a brute to say the least. Now, can I, I want to let you talk a little bit about the healing technologies and what we don't know already exists. Well, Mengele was one of my programmers, but um, the fathers were my primary programmers, just so you know. And the fathers were the ones I bonded to, but they also did a lot of the programming as well. The Jesuits have a training council of 12 head programmers that sit and discuss um, the programming protocols to be implemented. Okay. Um, Healing room. The technologies in these groups is much, much, much more advanced than is publicly known. In fact, some but not all. I think of um, companies that have gotten software and innovations in that field were actually given to it by the occultic groups that have been using it for years before that. But that's a whole other thing. Um, healing rooms were used. Um, they had technologies where they could, um, they had like artificial skin. So if someone got burned, like even on a mission or, or during programming or something, an accident happened, they got burned or, or, or sliced. You could put artificial skin on and you could... Um, radiate it with special wavelengths of light and and the person would grow new skin without a scar they had um like electrolyte bath that you could put people in to help heal uh their skin um to help heal various um things muscle soreness they um if you had a, a broken limb too you could put put someone's limb in it and uh in the electrolyte and calcium and various minerals and radiate it with specific wavelengths and it would actually help the person to heal much more quickly than normal and not show the uh, callus or a break when it heals um so there's also demonic healing where they would lay hands on people and the demonic would heal them i can't explain that i'm just telling you what i saw so you would have a combination of the physical healing and the spiritual healing technologies 
um, used on people, depending on the type of uh, thing. Now, of course, if someone's decapitated, they can't heal that, you know, it, duh. You know, but I've even seen someone where their back broke and they had trouble um, moving and they would they would use the healing technologies, both spiritual and physical on them, and, and they could, they healed. Wow. I wish it was some that the good technologies were publicly available. Why? How, how do they, um, in your opinion, control that in all of these decades? Because obviously they had some of the stuff 60 plus years ago at a minimum. How, how, how do you see that they have controlled for this to not be carried into the public domain? Uh, no one said, you know what? I know how to use this stuff. I'm going to cash out and make millions because I, I can do this. Like, well, just talk about some of those control mechanisms. Um, because the people using them are all completely programmed, mind controlled and loyal to the order. And they know that if they ever disclose something without permission, that probably um, their lives would be forfeit. So that's, or else the life of someone they love could, would probably be forfeit. And that's a pretty strong control against um, releasing things publicly that you've not been given authorization to as far as technologies. And who developed these? Like, where did they get these technologies from? Do you know? A lot of it came uh, through, uh, some of it came through like, like um, basically encounters with the demonic and then demonic told people how to do it. They believe that some of the technologies came from Atlantis, which was a very occultic, very evil society. Um, you know, but basically some of it was interfaced with the demonic, giving them the secrets. And then some part of it was, um, and part of it was, um, there's some very gifted people in the order too, um, very intelligent people. And like um, some of the genetics was to create high IQs in, their, in the people that are in the order. So, I've known children that are now adults that I mentored that have IQs that couldn't, couldn't even be um, probably measured on a standard test because of genetics. And, and so they have a very good understanding of quantum physics and, you know, like by the time they're seven, <laughs> you know, these are like super geniuses. And so, so these children who are normal children, they're not hybrids, by the way, mm -hmm. they're, but they are genetically enhanced because of the genetics. Um, they can come up with things like this too, with just, just a little help. Wow. Okay. So speaking of interacting with the demonic to get, to get technologies, obviously everybody gets training and in your order, they did a lot around the immortals. Can you talk about that? They do a lot of what? I'm sorry. You're, I'm having trouble hearing you. Oh, uh, I, I'm sorry. They did a lot around the immortals. Yeah. The big line. Um, the Joseph Order believes in ascension and descension. And so they believe that like there were these spiritual beings and they program the infants to um, through very concrete. They dress up as immortals and they come and they say, well, I'm so-and-so and I'm an immortal. And, and, you know, they speak with lovely sing-song voices and say, oh, I am, I am, you know, Crystallis and I am you know, this beautiful being, well, she doesn't say she's, she, I've come to teach you the ways of, of the immortals. And so they come and they're very loving to the babies, but these are actors dressed up, but the Jesuits go through that because they believe that babies need to, to see and feel concretely in order to prepare them for their spiritual experiences when they're older. So they think that without that, that prep as a baby, it'd be harder for them to interact with the mortals. 
But the mortals are demons. Mm. As you get older, you find these are demons. Yes, can they look beautiful? Yes, I saw a lot of the quote-unquote immortals in their beautiful form and their hideous form. They have two forms. And it's just when they uncloak from their beautiful form, you see what they truly are. They're just a black, dark, demonic spirit that's cut off from the God of the, that created the universe, the God of the Bible. And in the order, can you talk about the relationship, if any, between the immortals and the title Ascended Master? I'll try. Um, the Jesuits use the term Ascended Master, and other groups may use it differently, I don't know. But in they believe that that is someone who's achieved about as close as immortality on Earth as you can get. So that means you've traveled to the 13th dimension. And yes, they do dimensional travel. And I believe that's demonic. Those are demonic spirits deceiving people when they travel. Um, they An Ascended Master has achieved travel to the 13th dimension. And they've gone through a lot of occultic training such as I describe in the book. They learn how to play occultic chess. They learn how to shapeshift. They learn how to, as you say, transport. They, you know, um, yeah, they can translocate easily um, because of the demonic. And I was stunned to learn that Christians have also experienced, there's another side to it where the Christian God can actually transport people from one place to another. I didn't know that could happen until after I became a Christian. You know, I didn't know that the Christian God healed people until when I went to visit a church and saw someone healed by the spirit of the true God. So I think I'm a lot more excited about what God can do because I saw what the cultic can do. Yeah. yeah, they can do all that stuff because Satan is illegal. He makes ascended masters go jump through every little hoop you can think of. They have to do things perfectly. They have, to, and if they break a single law, boom, you know, they're either dead or, or, or tortured. You know, God's not that way. He has 10 times the power, the gifts, the knowledge, the ability for people in his kingdom that any occultic practitioner, that any ascended master could have. I've seen ascended masters levitate to the top of a building. So what? Because I I know of Christians who, through faith, have walked on water because God did it, and they asked him for you know. And anyway, he's not going to do it just to do it, but apparently it was as a witness. I've heard of so many miracles that the Christian God does. They're so much greater than anything I saw in the occultic. That I get a lot more excited now about thinking about what God can do than what the ascended masters do. But at the end of the day. In the order, the ascended masters were actual people that were going through all of the steps of training, yes, initiation, so on and so forth. They did. Yeah. Occultic practitioners will go through all kinds of discipline, training, pain, torture, trauma, um, learning to do spells, sacrifices. They'll do whatever it takes to achieve their status. But in the end, it's just demons making fools out of people. <laughs> The demons are making people run. They're like, jump. How high? Jump higher. How high? Go through this maze like a little little mouse for me. You know, and, and the demons just laughing because they got a human being to listen to them. And so as I look back, I think, what a waste. My whole lifetime of training was a waste because I was falling foolishness. Mm-hmm. I was falling stupidity. And I didn't even know it because all the people around me were falling it too. We didn't question each other. Now, I will tell you something, though, that happened when I was when I was a trainer and I was in my twenty, my late 20s. Yes. 
we had a four-year-old child, one of those ones with a really high intelligence. And this child came to the fathers and I, and, and, and this child said, why are you all so afraid of Satan? Why don't you all stop? And we looked at her like, oh my gosh, because she said, why are you doing this? Why don't you stop following him? And we were all stunned. And of course, we had to do a lot of major reprogramming. Dude, oh, no. <laughs> you know, but she saw as a four-year-old child, what we as adults were afraid to look at is that we were foolish. We were deceived. We were following the demonic, which is foolish. And I think in Romans, it says, you know, um, when they turned away from the living God, they became fools. So as this, I was a Sunday master. I was a fool in that role. I was on the mage council. I was a fool in that role because I did not know the source of true life, true authority, true power, and true healing. So I, I'm going to, I know I'm going to say in the end, all that jumping hoops for demons was foolishness. All the sacrifices to get power was foolishness. Amen. Now, there's so many things that you cover in just the autobiography, not to include all of the other writings and blogs that you have done. But one of the, I guess, other things that I would really like to talk about today has to do with the deployment of uh, Alice in Wonderland. Now, obviously, this was a major part of MK Ultra survivor experiences. A lot of people that went through that, and Kathy O'Brien would be one, and others, uh, uh, you know, they, they talk about in their accounts of things that happened, the Alice in Wonderland programming, but you talk about it as well. And, and, and you got it with the Jesuits. Now there are so many symbols, so many meanings, um, so much that goes on there. Can you just take some time to break down the Alice in Wonderland program and why, why it is such a shared programming template? Okay. Um, I know we're getting towards the end of our time, so I'll, I'll, uh, I will try to be as brief as I can, okay? Um, can you let me know what symbols and meanings you'd like me to address in it? or? So, the white rabbit. Can we start there? Okay. All right. Alice in Wonderland is a presentation program in the Jesuit order. So, its job is to control the presentation. And so, the child goes through this the training very early so that the um, present presentations will um will be under the control the amnesia and it's also part of the amnesia programming so if you have and especially if you have presentations in various countries it will help to um help you to forget it's it's it helps the presentations to forget what's happening on the occultic side of their life and it's also helping them to uh, believe that, like, let's say you ha- you have presentations in four countries. It helps the presentation in each country to believe that they are the only presentation, that there are no other presentations. So the white rabbit is, at least in the Jesuit programming, was the primary trainer. So for me, that was Father Matteo. He was my primary uh, trainer for that. And so the child Alice is a main presentation controller, and so she's taught to always follow the white rabbit, for example. The Cheshire cat is also is is actually a demon, but its job is to lead the child through through safely too. Um, another goal of Alice in Wonderland is that the presentations believe what they're told, because believing what you're told is an important important part of 
programming. So you go through scenarios like the tea party I describe in my book where Alice Numison is a um is a, in the Jesuits, Numison is also a memory controller for Alice. And then that also controls the memories of the presentations since Alice is over the presentations. So Nemeson has tea with Alice. And while this terrible scene is occurring around them, you know, Nemeson says, what's wrong, Alice? Why are you upset? And then Alice says, oh, look, look at all the people, you know, what people, Alice, you know, she says, you know, so it's to teach a child not to, to stop seeing cult things when they happen in their presentation. And to teach them to only remember non-cult things in the presentation. Now, the cult host remembers all everything, all this, the cult stuff. But the presentation is not supposed to. But Wonderland also has different areas. Like you'll have French Wonderland, German Wonderland, UK Wonderland, America Wonderland. These are just for example. You know, it's going to vary for the person in their presentations. So all the French presentations stay in French Wonderland. The German presenters stay in German Wonderland. The UK presenters stay in UK Wonderland, you know, and then the Americans stay in America Wonderland. And so when they're not out presenting, they're watching videos playing internally of their life, you know, that so that they don't feel like they're losing time. So that that presentation thinks, oh, I have a whole life history. Well, part of it is because they've been in Wonderland watching videos of their quote unquote life. And so let's say that a child goes to Germany for, for two, three weeks. Well, she's lost time in her other presentations, right? So what they'll do is when you go back to the training facility, they'll run a video for a few hours of some prime key memories of the and call like French presentation out, view them the videos, and then, oh, those are my memories of Christmas. That's my memory of my birthday party in France, you know. Or they might run uh, videos of in, you know, and the child sitting in Wonderland watching the videos because in Wonderland, you believe everything. So the UK child might be watching the videos of like her family moving, you know, and stuff like that. And she thinks those are her memories. Because when we do recall, we actually see it's almost like a film sometimes in our minds, right? Well, so they incorporate that. And so that's how a child can have several presentations and think that each one is the only presentation because they they have memories, but they were actually watching videos. And then internally, they were watching the videos as well of their memories of their life. Or um, anyway, that's one way it can work. And um, so Alice, Alice in Wonderland is a very complex program, but it's meant to control the presentations and what they remember. Thank you. Okay. Obviously, we're going to have to, at some point, do a part three because we opened up a lot of <laughs> subjects that I didn't even come back around to, and that's okay. My final question to you before we conclude this interview, what do you hope that your latest book, Never Give Up, achieves for the readers? Thank you. Two things, well, three things. One thing is I want people who work with survivors as therapists and as supporters to understand how attachment can be used to program the child. Because if you read my book, what you're seeing is it wasn't the torture that really held me. It was the love, the love of the fathers. And that's why, you know, I mean, I loved my programmers and they loved me and it was genuine. It was, it was chained love because they serve Satan. So they were not free to love me, but to understand the role of attachment and how it gets manipulated in programming. That's why I'm so detailed about some of my interactions and conversations to show how they build the attachment with the child. Because 
when I first got my memories, it was of abuse. And it was like, oh, I hate them. They're so evil. They're so awful. Well, that's because my system was protecting the people I loved most. And that's human nature is to protect the people we love. It wasn't until I was further into my healing, I remember, oh my gosh, this is my, the people I, I viewed as a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, the people I love most on earth. And that's what makes getting out so difficult is the attachment to these people. The other thing is if there's any, and by the way, it's pretty graphic, so I don't recommend it for survivors unless they get an okay from their their support person, their therapist or someone. But um, if someone came from a very high occultic abuse background, I think that they would, um, or until they feel ready to, I'm going to say that too. Survivors may know when they're ready to read something that detail, but they'll know, they'll read it and they'll know she's telling. She got out because people don't talk about this stuff unless they got out. Um, and I want them to know people get out, that you can be an ascended master, a top mage, a whatever, and you can leave. And I've known, I have known others that got out. I want to give people hope that it doesn't matter what you've been, what level you're in, and what they put you through. God can get you out and he can keep you safe. And finally, um, I want to highlight the need for support. Because if you read this, you're going to see that person's going to need some support getting out. They're going to need some help. And I wish the Christian church could hear this stuff and understand the need to, because the church in recent years has started to stand beside trafficking survivors. But if you go into a church and say, I'm a survivor of ritual abuse, in general, they'll run. Most churches will. Now, there's ministries that won't. And there's people that won't. But in general, the Christian church is terrified of this topic, and they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to know about it. And I, I'm not saying this in bitterness. I'm saying this is a, a prayer point. The Christian church needs to know we, when the revival hits, we're going to have a flood of survivors trying to get out. And who say that again? When the revival, the, I believe God is going to bring a great revival over the earth. All the vacant oracles have predicted it for, for decades. There's going to be a huge revival um, hitting the earth. And when it does, there's going to be a massive exodus from not just the Jesuit order, but other orders. So who is going to stand beside the survivors who are leaving? Who's going to be equipped to pray for them, to love them, to be with them, and to not be afraid? Okay. Well, thank you for writing a book. Friends, uh, we will probably pick up this conversation at some point in the future, but for now, Never give up. The autobiography of a survivor of ritual abuse and mind control is available on Amazon, written by my guest, Svali, S-V-A-L-I. Thank you so much for your time today. This was really, really wonderful having another opportunity to sit down with you. And I am looking forward to future conversations. And thank you. And I, I appreciate your allowing me to, to be here and to share. It's <laughs> what I'm here for. Friends, until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Visit me at dandevall.com where you will discover merch, books, and the opportunity to engage in our private social network. Join the tribe by subscribing to our email list and supporting this podcast. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.